I'd invite you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1, which is where we will be. Just last Sunday, uh, very specifically on Father's Day, we began a campaign um, that is raising money for Real Options. Real Options is an organization that is giving women who are considering abortion um, options. And, um, and so these baby bottles went out to many, many homes in our church. The action item is to fill it up with money, but more than that, as it sits on your counter to be praying um, along these lines. We already have some of you bringing these bottles back. And so uh, as you bring them back, where's Patty Smith? Patty, raise your hand. Patty's here. She'll be in the back. Um, and so bring your bottle back, and every single dime of this is going to be going to real options. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> um, uh, so that's all going to, to real options. And a part of why we did it on Father's Day is this. If men were living the way God intended men to live, we would not have an abortion crisis in the United States or around the world. Amen? Amen? That means, first of all, that it takes two to get pregnant. God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman till death do us part. That's what submitting to a holy name is like. It's for his glory and for our good. That's not happening. So women who are getting pregnant and then have men nowhere in their life to be found feels like they are forced into a choice, and we have a culture pushing them into a corral saying there's one option. Um, and and what, what we are praying about, it's been remarkable this week in the Supreme Court's decision with Roe v. Wade on the very week that we happen to be putting this out, that... Again, our most vulnerable people, it is a life, we know that now, science is caught up with the Bible, it is a life um, that, that, um, that protections are, are, are being made for them. So as men, we are called, we are intrinsically created to be protectors. That's God-given, that's God-designed. Um, and so for us to step up on Father's Day and say we're going to take the lead in this um, is a profound thing. This runs until July 10th, so you have until July 10th to, to complete this little assignment. If you didn't get a baby bottle, by the way, there's empty ones in the back. And um, exciting news that, that, um, that we discovered this week as well, a matching grant has come in to say that every penny that's being given here, every dollar that's being given to this is going to be matched by someone else. Um, so all of this money is going to support Real options. I do want to make mention of this too. Uh, Chuck just gave a financial update. Um, churches split over finances, just like homes do. Homes split over where the money goes, and your money is where your heart is. Um, I just want to celebrate this church. God, year after year after year, we're in year 16. Many church plants don't make it due to finances. And I just want to celebrate the people in this room, people watching online, uh, people who have left this church um, and actually continue to support what's happening here because God used the ministry and they just believe in what's happening. Um, we just celebrate that. Uh, we got some new cameras at the start of COVID, like everyone on the planet did, and tried to figure out live streaming. Um, and right now, camera A, don't you hate it when camera A freezes on you on a Sunday morning? You wake up and camera A is broken. Well, that's where we're at this morning. So if you're watching on YouTube, hi. You're going to see my good side the whole time. Actually, the debate's still out which the good side is. We don't know if there is a good side, but um, all the fancy camera work, we don't do a whole lot here, but we try to make it. So anyway, uh, just, just a comment about that. So um, this is part of what uh, finances go to, right? Is that light bulbs break, cameras break, and need to be replaced. So um, let me say this, that um, a, part of, a part of what is so exciting, so about 30 of us 
um, are heading off to camp. And part of why you don't see many middle school and high school students in the service right now is they have already left. The moment I say amen to the sermon today, I'm putting shorts on in my office. I'm getting in a van with 11 other people, and we're driving up to camp. Um, So we just celebrate this church's remarkable generosity in bringing camp costs down that opened it up to anyone who wanted to go. One of Matt's crazy ideas was to do flamingoing, which I had never heard of before. Uh, This is an artist, Gary Larson's uh, portrayal um, of how flamingoing is going. It's going really, really well. Um, I cracked up. I have a daily calendar of the far side that just keeps me happy. Um, And I tore this off midweek this week, and I'm just screaming to the staff. I'm like, look at this! So this is the next iteration of flamingoing. We'll actually be able to buy snakes next door to people who have flamingos. Um, So just a huge thanks to um, how that fundraising has gone on. And um, a waterless car wash, guys, that again, you just came through on, um, and the youth, uh, just God has done really remarkable things. So we're, we're just celebrating that. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, and I want to show you a picture. Uh, way back in the day, like say 2019, you would think this picture is made of, a, of your medical team discussing your upcoming surgery. What we now know is this is a small group circa 2021, maybe early uh, 22, right? Um, and what's interesting is never before has the word contagious been so incredibly common in just everyday lingo. And not just the word contagious, but think of how many things we just throw around and say all the time. Quarantine, antigen, clustered, transmission, super spreader, PPE, N95. We know what all this means. Like in 2019, if I did that, you're like, Dave is speaking in tongues. We don't know what's happening right now. But we all understand this now because this is just the new sort of bizarre world that we are in. Now, most of the time when you hear contagious, don't you think negative? I do. Everything I just rattled off is kind of a negative. In fact, it's kind of confusing when you're like, do I want a negative test or a positive? No, it's positive they get a negative test. So you have to like rework your brain and just figure all this stuff out. Well, contagious can be good. What if what is being transmitted from one person to another is true and good and pure and virtuous and helpful? Then all of a sudden, contagious is actually a good thing. It's not a bad word in that case. Eternal life is one of those things. In the supernatural providence and design of God, he has designed the world in such a way as to bring people from spiritual death into spiritual eternal life through the transmission of one person to another. I don't know if that makes you wonder, but it ought to. If we come back to how could God have done it, he could have done it in a lot of ways. Like planes that fly overhead and spray pesticides on us in the middle of the night. Like he could have just sprayed gospel juice on us, right? Easily. And that's how we do it. We're like, oh, super spreader. Like that's the ultimate super spreader. I'm a Christian now. I woke up born again. That's not how he chose to do it. He chose to do it individual person to individual person to individual person to individual person. With that in mind, these next two weeks are just so critical. Second Timothy, by the way, preaches itself. Here's what I mean by that. I have about five sermons that I've condensed into one. That means there's just loads of amazing stuff. I want to encourage you, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, older siblings, that may be one of the only ones in your family teaching your young children about Christ, read a small passage in Second Timothy and then just discuss it with them. 
There's loads there. Just sitting kind of right on the surface, easy for us to pick. So eternal life, the only lasting real life is saving faith through Jesus Christ. This is called the good news or the gospel. And the gospel is, again, just one of these things that is contagious. It's transmittable. Along with that is courage. Courage is actually contagious. And if the courageous thing being done is for the kingdom and glory of God, then that is a great thing. Here's what I want to show you from the text today. That living and defending the truth um, is the way of every Jesus disciple. Living the truth, defending the truth. That's the way of every Jesus disciple, and it requires immense courage from within. Let me hit pause for a second on the scriptures. We're going to get to the scriptures in a second. Think of your favorite movie, or let me just put it this way. Think of a movie where the lead character or group of people was facing some immense crisis, had to well up courage from within to sort of lead the attack, lead the charge, get things back on track to where the world ought to be, and that that single act of courage, that one man or woman who led the charge, actually led an army of people behind them. Does this ring true in any of our movies? How about all of our movies? Almost every single movie speaks to this. Who's the grand author? It's God. It is, it is telling gospel truth in us. We're going to see today our movies like come to life in the gospel. We're in this series, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is written by an older pastor who's on death row. Why is he on death row? Because he won't budge on his faith. Deny Jesus Christ, fall down and worship our pagan gods, and you live. No way, says Paul. Is that courageous? It's courageous. He's keeping... His fidelity to the faith, not just in his words, but by his very life. That's the test he's facing right now. So he's writing to a younger pastor who's leading a church that is in the fight of its life. The attacks are coming from within and from without. It's not that different than the sort of cultural vibe that we have going on in our day and age. What is 4,000 hours or 4,000 weeks to live? Well, 4,000 weeks is the rough measurement of a person who's lived 76 years of life. 4,000 hours is how many hours Paul has left before Nero, the Roman emperor of his day, is going to behead him. For his faith. Paul's pretty convinced in 1 Timothy that he's getting out. Actually, his first imprisonment. He's pretty positive he's getting out. He was right. His, his, his wording in 2 Timothy, he's pretty confident he's not getting out. He was right. So Paul has about 4,000 hours to live as he writes this. Life is short. We want to live it well. There's urgency to this. So Paul's courage is not only visible, it's contagious. What Paul is doing in prison for his faith actually stirs up courage. One of the things Paul is known as is an exhorter. But he's also an encourager, an exhorter and an encourager. You know what the word encourage literally means? It means to pour courage into. Some of you have the gift of encouragement. You're just encouragers. I'll tell you, one of the ways you can pray... 
I, we, we just sat around as a staff, and I said this to the team. I said, what this team has in spades is this. Every single one of us is going to camp for the right motive and reason. We all genuinely love middle school and high school students. And what a gift it will be to just see those kids this week and celebrate them and affirm them and encourage them. They're going to be encouraged in their faith in all kinds of different ways. But what a gift that is. There's so much negativity on a middle schooler right now. There's so much negativity in a high schooler right now. Many adults have no clue how phenomenal young people are because all they get is the negative. All they get are smash and grab people at the mall doing crazy stuff and saying, wow, our kids are going to hell in a handbasket. Well, actually, they're going to Hume in my van. So different story. (laughs) They're just around the wrong kids. Um, All right, so we're going to read this passage. And I want you to listen to these two things. We're given, we're given two imperatives, two things we are called to do. I don't know what kind of notation system you have in your Bible, but anytime you have something you are supposed to do, I mostly do digital now. I highlight that in green. You know why? Green means go. Go do this. There are imperatives, commands, for every Christian to follow. So if you name the name of Jesus, listen carefully. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Listen for follow and guard, Okay. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow and guard. Do you hear it? Super simple, super straightforward. That means we are to live the truth and we're to guard the truth. Live the truth, guard the truth. Follow the pattern of the truth, the way. How are we to do it? It's right here. Two, two parts of the Godhead are here. In the Son, by the Holy Spirit. In the Son, by the Holy Spirit. So if you have ADHD or ADD and you just can listen for 30 seconds, here it is very quickly. What's this passage? Live the truth, guard the truth. How? By, um, uh, sorry, in the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Got it? Okay, good. Now we can go back. Doodle. Doodling helps me. I'm on that spectrum. So I need the same thing. Give it to me quick. All right, here we go. We're going to keep going. Um, as, we were, as I was studying this passage, I go to Matt, and I'm like, hey, Matt, what's your title for your summer series? Because I, I know where he was going. And what's fascinating is this. The Bible is always relevant and right on time. The Bible is always relevant and right on time. One of the, one of the, the, the last thing I have to do as a preacher is make the Bible relevant. Crazy talk. That's stupid. I don't need to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant and right on time. One of the reasons I I pray that you would put yourself on some kind of a reading plan, God will show up in your reading plan in the most unexpected ways. Oh, I'm 14 days behind my reading plan. Guess what? Watch for it. God will take your 14-day tardiness. He will give you the scripture on the day that you needed it. And say, wow, God is working all things together for my good, even my procrastination. We are preaching through books of the Bible. That's our bread and butter. We're not against topical preaching. We go do topical preaching as well. But God continually raises up answers to questions we're not even asking. Because we march through books of the Bible. So here's why I'm bringing all that up. I never stop marveling at the way that the word of God speaks into my personal life and the life of this specific church in incredible ways. This summer, Matt and the youth team are training up the youth to, catch this, seek the truth and stand firm once you know the truth. Does that sound like our text today? It should, because it's exactly it. 
And this, of course, lines up perfectly with our uh, summer series. And the theme of camp this summer lines up perfectly with what Matt and the youth team are doing on Tuesdays and what their church is doing uh, over the course of the summer. Let me show you a short video. This is sort of a promo video of the theme of Hume Lake this summer, what our kids will be getting uh, in the next week or so. Truth, it's not complicated. Opinions are one thing, this food I like, this I hated. But truth is much simpler, it can't be debated. The truth should be anything but complicated. Like roses are red, violets are blue. It's ridiculously clear. Color that statement true. Truth be told, the truth might just set you free. Okay, so... Hume doesn't play. Hume does play. Actually, Hume plays really, really well. But man, we get right into it. That is what our students are going to be talking about and discussing and being challenged with and encouraged with this week. So follow the pattern of sound words. Live the truth. Guard the truth. Defend it. How do we do this? You ought to ask questions of the Bible when you do it. Who are we guarding it from? What is it we're exactly guarding? How do we obey these verses? So let's take um, just sort of a look at that. First of all, this, the overriding thought. Um, I'm going to go back to this slide. I'm going to need to skip the video in just a second. The overriding thought is this. Guarding something always requires courage. You don't know exactly when or you don't know the amount, but guarding something always requires courage. If you're convinced of the value of that which you are guarding, courage will come with it. Let me explain from Tuesday's pre-dinner conversation. Uh, we were sitting on the back deck because it's really hot in our house uh, in the late afternoons, and we were waiting for dinner, and uh, I'm sitting there with my eight-year-old Everly, and we're all sitting down there, probably four or five of us are down there, and she asked this question out of the blue. She goes, Dad, what would you do if a bad guy took me? Now, we weren't talking kidnapping, we weren't talking espionage, we hadn't watched any of the Jason Bourne movies, I don't know where this came from, she's eight. But talk about a teachable moment, it just sort of went, I got really real. And I said, I said, look at me, Everly. I said, I would do whatever it would take to not let him take you. That's what I would do. And I said, and, and, and I would not stop until you were saved. I'm getting more choked up now than when I did in, in the moment. Because it's followed up with weird things. She goes, would you punch the guy? I said, oh yeah, I'd punch the guy. Really? And it led to an eye-opening conversation about what their mild-mannered pastor dad would do if someone was trying to take one of my babies. As we talked, um, when it came back to it, I, I, I thought about this the next day as I was sitting in my office. I thought, you know what? The, um, the value of my kids would stir up courage in me in that moment that would, that would rise to the level of the value of that which I was guarded. I've been entrusted to guard the life of my children, the well-being of my children. I can assure you that I would have things come in that moment. They would, my, my courage would rise to unimaginable levels if I was put to that test. Every parent, grandparent, and even those of you who aren't can imagine that. Say, yep, totally. 
So what's powerful about that to me is this. Christian, our courage will rise to the level of the value of that which we are guarding. Many people wouldn't die for their convictions because they don't have convictions worth dying for. They don't really hold something so incredibly valuable that it's, that it's somehow, it might be comparable to stuff of this life. And so they're, they're forced in that moment to sort of make a choice. But if the value of that which we are guarding is, is infinitely valuable and certainly worth dying for, unquestioned, our courage will rise in that moment because of the value of that which we are guarding. So what is this good deposit talked about in verse 14? That's really important to get our, our heads around. Paul repeated this idea in various ways through various letters. He called it the gospel, the, 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 the gospel, sort of a summary idea of the truths of the Christian faith, the pattern of words. Elsewhere, he calls it sound doctrine. And in another place, he says, what you have learned and seen in me. So it's not just words, right? It's a lifestyle. Follow the pattern of the words. So it's not just a Um, a a set of words, but it is word-based. In fact, I would say this, all this can be summarized by the gospel. That's what we mean when we say the gospel. And the gospel is an actual something. Sound doctrine is an actual something. In fact, if you're newish to the Christian faith or just seeking or asking questions, let me be really clear about something. Christianity is not a wordless experience of the supernatural. Does it have wordless supernatural experiences? Absolutely. But Christianity is not a wordless supernatural experience. It is a set of sound words that can be heard and taught and learned and remembered and passed on to others. Do you know that many of the schools around the world, many of the language uh, uh, advancement in human history have been motivated by Christians seeking to pass on the sound words? To this day, that work goes on in incredible ways. Whole written languages exist. I was there at Valley Church in Cupertino where I was serving as a pastor when the very first printed book of the New Testament was printed in a new language in a land far away in South America. That's so cool! On our printer! I was just trying to print Tuesday night's Bible study stuff or something. And here's here's the first printed copy of probably the gospel of Mark or John that was being printed right there. All of that is because the gospel is transferable in those ways. Paul instructs uh, Timothy to have and to hold, to keep, to preserve the pattern of words. Isn't it true that when clarity and precision are needed and accountability, we write stuff down? That's true for contracts. That's true for instructions, warnings, formulas. We write it down when it's really important. Well, God went on record, 66 books, declaring, this is who I am. This is what I'm up to. This is how it's going to end. And the overarching story of 66 books is this good news of the gospel. God wrote it down. All right, back to Tuesday's pre-dinner conversation. That was Everly's concern. We began to talk about the Bible in some way, shape, or form, and then Tate throws this out. He says, well, who actually wrote the Bible? Tate is eight. Kids are thinking, aren't they? Who actually wrote the Bible? I said, man, Tate, that's an amazing question, really good question. I'm so glad you asked it. I said, God wrote 
the Bible supernaturally, but he used regular everyday people to write it. It's called inspiration. And he wrote it through regular people. And then he said this, but how can they know the whole story? I said, Tate, that's an amazing follow-up question. You're too smart for your own good. You know what Tate's special need was in a Chinese orphanage? Part of his special need was that he, uh, they, they, they worried about his brain being too small. They were wrong. He's like Megamind. He's, our, he's just like super sharp. So I tell this young theologian that's developing in my home, I said, listen, Tate, that's an amazing follow-up question. Here's the answer. They didn't. They couldn't possibly know the whole story. But you know what they did? Like a puzzle piece, they wrote what their puzzle piece was. You know who knows the whole story? God does. And God supernaturally takes that puzzle piece. And did you know that the Bible's written by over 40 different authors, three different languages, spanning 1,500 years, ranging from kings to shepherds? How is the Bible not utterly destroyed as an incohesive mess, if not supernaturally put together? Study this. It will give you such conviction that the word of God is able to be stood on completely. If it's not inerrant, it's not God's word. It's not man's thoughts or ideas sort of trinkled up towards God. We're going to get to that in a second. So that was pre-dinner conversation. I don't even know what we got to by the time dinner was happening, but I'm like, wow, we're covering some, some good topics. So this is what we are to guard now, living and defending truth requires courage, but not all courage looks the same. So um, let, me, let me talk about this title slide for just a second. Um, people jumping out of an airplane, okay? Some of you are like, I would never do that. Some of you really want to do that. So if anyone ever wants to take, yeah, if anyone wants to take an NBC tri- uh, trip, let's do this thing. Uh, that'd be so fun. Um, but people jumping out of an airplane kind of gave me this idea. I want you to think life of faith. Uh, most people are like, why would I jump out of a perfectly good airplane? What if the airplane you were born into was bound to crash? And God himself showed up in a body and said, put on this parachute, trust me, and then jump first. That's the choice that we're sort of sitting with, right? So why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? You may not. What if that thing was sure to crash? You might put your chances on the parachute. The second thing I want you to see about this is more than just saying words, like I believe in parachutes, the Christian life is about stepping out and then taking another step and taking another step. Come and follow me, Jesus says. He still puts the same invitation out. It's not come and believe in me, come and trust in me, come and sign a document that says you believe in these things. I believe in parachutes is different than stepping out of a plane, amen? So is the Christian life. You will never know the absolute, exhilarating, terrifying, wonderful, awe-inspiring experience of following Jesus Christ if you just attest to it intellectually. You will experience all of that, I promise you, as you step out in faith. That's the Christian life. Here's the other thing I want you to see. There's something powerful when we see others act in courage. I don't know who the first one was to jump out of this, but people jump out of planes all the time. And I imagine every first-time jumper is kind of like, let me see someone else go first. And they watch out, they're like, wait, how many jumps have you done again? 224. And you're still alive? Uh, Yes. Would you go first? Sure. Boop, out you go. There's something in us that says when we say courage in someone else, it sort of wells up courage in us to be able to go and do the same thing because courage is contagious. 
in all these different stories, there's always this sort of storyline that says you have to look within yourself. It has to come deep within yourself. You have to stir up the courage in yourself. As a Christian, all truth is God's truth. I understand that. Which means those who are by their lifestyle flipping God off, living as complete rebels, when they get it right, I just go, that's the abundant grace of God. That's the imprint of God on them, whether they acknowledge that ever or not. So when I see a storyline, a movie that says, you've got to find it within yourself. Do you know what I hear? I hear this passage. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. The same Spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is present with me. Pray for me at camp, but do you know why I'm going to be abundantly okay and filled with all the grace and all the energy and all the patience and all the smell-repelling things that are needing to happen in my nostrils to keep me alive? It's because the Holy Spirit is with me. Everywhere I go, he'll do far more abundantly than what I could possibly ask, think, or imagine. I'm never alone. He's the spirit that will guide me into all truth. So what do I, what do I fear? What do I lack? Nothing. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. When you're called, Christian, to rise up to the occasion when you are under attack, you will have the courage you need. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's exactly what the movies say. Look within you and dwell and, and, and lean on the courage that's within you. Yeah, it's called the Holy Spirit. If it were left to me, that's terrible. I'd be terrified, but it's not. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. Here's where Paul goes with the remaining part of my time. I just want to show you this. Paul gives now a negative example and a positive example. It's true, isn't it, that courage doesn't always look the same. Courage on Monday can look different than Friday morning. And courage in one season can look totally different than in some other season. Let me get past this video. I may need help from the back. Nope, I didn't. Now I'm going too far and I'm going back. Okay, in your outline, this is already written down for you. But sometimes courage looks like standing firm or staying put. Look back in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul's saying, follow the pattern of the sound words, guard the good deposit. Then he says this, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So he names two people specifically, but he says, everyone in this whole region turned away from me. They lacked the courage. They saw that Paul was being persecuted and they split. All who are in Asia, Asia, amongst whom are these two people. So sometimes courage looks like standing firm or staying put. The negative example are deserters. There are people who are deserting the Christian faith right now. Under cultural pressure, under family pressure, under roommate pressure, under spousal pressure, under child pressure, they are abandoning the faith. Elsewhere, it's called making a shipwreck of your faith. What a vivid picture that is. It's a bad trade. What prompts that? Fear and shame. I grew up as a paper boy. That's how I first started earning money. And I'd wake up super early in the morning, and I would wrap, fold papers, put them on my bike, ride around, chuck around, just like the video game, just like you see in the old movies. That was a real thing. I'm an, I can attest to it. As a Christian... I'm a paper boy. I'm not an editor. What if each morning I read the news, I'm like, tear that story out. They don't want to hear about that. Flip. Ah, we're tearing that one out. The wrong person won the game. I don't want that to get out. That's an editor. I wouldn't be a paper boy for very long. People would be mad at me and fire me. 
Um, super easy, super easy to see in our own lives, right? Um, Christian, hear me clearly. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Meekly submit to his word. You are not an editor of God's word. Here's a super obvious hint. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. I'm a paper boy. I hope you get mad at me once in a while from the things I preach, but I hope, they're, I hope you're mad at me because it's just the truth of God's word that I'm delivering that's convicting you. I get mad at the Bible. <gasps> yes, it's true. I think it's really good when your quiet time isn't so quiet. Periodically, it ought to bump up and punch you in the face and go, I think I've had this wrong. Is that, could that really be true? I've always avoided that verse. I didn't like that verse. I was embarrassed by that verse. I'm ashamed by that verse. I don't understand that verse. That seems confusing. That seems like hard work to get at. What do editors do? Highlight, delete, just chuck it. Turn that page in my Bible. I'll think of something else. But here's the powerful thing. Every single person in every single age has been tempted to edit the Bible, the gospel, the hard sayings of Jesus when they are with certain groups of people. I bet on Sunday morning you don't feel any embarrassment at the hard sayings of Jesus. I bet in other settings and circles you do. And you feel that pressure to minimize, to apologize for, to dismiss, or outright change your view on things. Many, many people who have changed views on things. We've had many, many friends, um, um, co-laborers with me, fellow pastors with me. Dear friends that have just pulled away from a very middle-of-the-road sound doctrine, biblical thinking on things, here's a really powerful question for yourself or for someone else who's deconstructing their faith or changing completely on something. Ask them what in the Bible is prompting them to make that change. Many, 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 many times, it has nothing to do with a new interpretation or new understanding or greater development of their understanding of theology, of what God's revealed in his words. Truth be told, it's pressure from things at work. It's, it's too high of a cost to walk as a Bible-believing Christian on my campus. And so I'm going to acclimate uh, in, this, in this one area. Consider this. Any change to a perfect God is a change for the worse. So the God we read in the Old Testament is the same God who we read in the New Testament. That used to embarrass me. That used to really challenge me. Have you read the Old Testament? There's some really challenging things that have gone on there. I'll tell you, the more I've understood it, the more I've read it, the more I've prayed about it, the more I trust it, believe it, understand it, and have confidence to deliver it. When it comes to God's word, a part of the embarrassment that comes sometimes is not having a right understanding. Someone fires a question back at you and you don't have a good answer for it. You go, that's a really good point. I don't know how to answer that. You know what you should humbly say? That's a really good point. I don't have an answer for that. I've come to trust. I've been doing this since I was 17. I'd go back to my youth leader. Hey, someone told me this. I don't know how to answer that. Sometimes the things my friends would say would stump my youth leader. So we'd go higher up. We'd ask one of the pastors at the church. Eventually, I began to feed myself. I still ask people different questions. But the more and more and more that happens, what happens is this. With God's word, make sure you understand in, con- in, in, in context. 
So many, many people like to grab a verse of Scripture and use it to support their point. A cursory reading of the rest of the chapter says, wait a minute, two verses later, this destroys your entire argument. So do Christians do that? Absolutely. To their folly. I see sometimes the way Christians defend the right to life, and I'm appalled by it. I go, oh, there's such a different way to do that. I see sometimes the way that people say something. In fact, I saw this. I'm not even going to go there. I don't have time to get there. Uh, Let me keep going. Here's the second thing. Not only getting into context, but do it with your life, not just your mouth. I think one of the most powerful accountabilities for Christians are their neighbors and their family or roommates. Because they really see them day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. If you live with your mouth and life with integrity, they're integrated, it confounds your critics. I have a couple of family members who are vehemently against born-again Christians. They make sport of mocking them. We have heard through the grapevine, they're confounded by Becky and I. They don't know what to do with us. Because they love us dearly and respect us dearly. That's not Dave and Becky, that's the Holy Spirit just living following the sound pattern, but not just talking about it, living it. Many people have caved to the pressure of shame and fear that come from all sides, and in the process, some have have dismissed the very gospel itself that saves. They've traded their life for a bowl of cultural soup that will make them feel comfortable for a short season of time. Romans 1.16 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Church, maybe you have former friends, colleagues, churchmates, family that are pressuring you to conform or be canceled. Does that sound familiar? Conform on this or you'll be canceled. Here's my word. Sometimes courage looks like standing firm. Have courage. Have confidence in God. Have confidence that, no, this is where I've put my lot in and I'm not budging from there. I'm staying put. By the way, the best time to prep for this is before the heat is on. Best time to prep for this is little by little, day by day, over the course of time. If you stay ready, you'll never need to get ready. It's that idea, right? So just stay on this. Here's a really powerful thing too. It's never too late for those who didn't stand firm. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but if I asked how many of you have not stood firm, we should all raise our hand. Me. I did not stand firm. You know why there's hope for us? You know it's proof positive? How many disciples stayed with Jesus on the night he was betrayed? Exactly zero. Jesus predicted it. The shepherd's going to be struck. All the shepherds, all the sheep are going to go, pew, we're out of here. Peter went so far as to take his big mouth and deny him three times. Calling on curses on himself. I do not know this man. There's such hope. There's such grace for wayward sheep that scatter when they're first tested. Jesus restores them to ministry. But way more important, he restores them to relationship. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. How many times does he ask him? Three. How many times did Peter deny him? Three. Perhaps that's one for each denial. Peter, we're good. Are we good? We're good. I'm good with you. Now let's get to work. Oh, that's such a beautiful picture. Thank you, Lord, for putting failure in the Bible. One more thought is this. First Timothy 
It dawned on me as we're preaching through 1 Timothy, a part of Paul's call to Timothy was stay put in Ephesus. Stay put, Timothy. Many, many people, pastors are super guilty of this. Grass is greener elsewhere. They use a small church setting as a stepping stone. If I could just get my platform, if I could just get my, my brand out there, if I could just go there, I'd have a bigger, better, wider ministry. Leaving a church is not always wrong, but sometimes it is. Leaving for greener pastures, leaning, leaving for the pastor's namesake, man, that, that's wicked. So stay put in Ephesus, Timothy. It's going to be a hard assignment. You're going to have all kinds of false doctrine to deal with. All, stuff's coming down the pike. Stay put. Courage for you looks like staying put. All right, next he gives a positive example. Because sometimes courage looks like stepping up or stepping out. By the way, I didn't point this out. Let me show you something kind of cool. Here's what I meant by this. Here's my laser pointer. You see these two little birds up here in the corner? Uh, They're staying put. Sometimes there are these branches that like, everyone's doing it. See, it's safe. We're all good. Look at me. I'm way on the end. Weaklings, scaredy pants. You guys are so lame for staying put. God's word says, don't get on the branch. Hey, little birds, don't get on the branch. No matter how much peer pressure comes on, no matter how safe it looks, no matter how fun it looks, don't get on the branch. All right, that's what that is. Next one. Sometimes courage looks like stepping up or stepping out. Verse 16. So he calls out Asia and these two guys, man, everyone abandoned me. He says, but may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. I practice these. I'm, I'm butchering this morning. For he often refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived at Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you, um, and you well know all the service that he rendered to me in Ephesus. So if the negative example are deserters, his positive example are seekers. Instead of being ashamed of his chains, instead of being ashamed of, of, his, um, of his persecution, man, this, this guy and his household run and seek it out. How can we go and be a part of this and help this person out? What does he mean by refreshed? It could be hospitality, but I'll tell you as a pastor, sometimes refreshment comes in non-material things. I'm praying for you. Hey, I know this must be a rough season. I want you to know that my family and I have committed uh, every weekday to be praying for you at 3 p.m. I met with someone here who said, man, I'm still trying to get your kids' names but I'm trying to get them because I want to be praying for your family. I can't tell you um, as, a, as a longtime pastor in the very same city that I was born and raised in that part of the encouragement, part of the refreshment, part of the reason I can go to battle and be all alone in settings is because I have the wind at my back. I have my, I have my people with me. There's all this encouragement that kind of goes on. It works both ways. Most Wednesdays, I'm praying with Rich and other pastors, and we comment all the time, God, we get to, on a Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get to take one hour, carve it out, and just address you and trust by you and pray on behalf of our people. We get that most people have to be at work right now, busting it to make a living, to live here. We want to stand in the gap and just pray for you people. So there's refreshment. What do we know about how he did it? He did it often. And that Paul was refreshed by it. It was this ongoing help. I think part of the gift was the openness. That he wasn't ashamed to be doing this. 
He didn't sneak in. He did it openly, risking his own sense as well. I tell you, when I first made a commitment of Christ, I was attending Prospect High School. I was a junior in high school. I didn't know of any other Christians. There was something called Young Life there, but the Young Life were some of the biggest partiers on our campus. I think Young Life was, had to be like young in Christ life, but it was just young life, like fleshly life. God gave me one friend. His name was Scott. And Scott attended Las Gatos Christian Church with me, and he was the one other Christian. I felt like I was a sheep in a den of wolves. And to have one other Christian brother that attended my youth group that uh, was seeking to live and guard the truth, man, it made a world of difference. Sometimes we bemoan the fact that we don't have a community group like our cousin does back in that place or our last church we didn't have. Pray for one good friend and then celebrate that good friend. Invest in that friend. Be thankful that you have that. Everyone abandoned Paul. Was Paul doing something wrong? No, I think he was doing something right and it was hot. People ran away from it. So encourage. Step up and step out when the truth and its ministers are under attack. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that just came to mind as I think about this guy and the way he refreshed Paul. Don't lose heart in doing good. He didn't go, well, I, I went to Rome. I didn't really see him, so I gave up. He went and sought him out. He was diligent. Don't lose heart in doing good. Be zealous for good works, we're told in Romans. Be zealous for good works. That means plan it out, figure it out. Oh, I hit a hurdle. Good. Bust through it in the name of the Lord and keep going. If it's the right thing, do it. Seek it out and don't wait. All right, let me, let me wrap up with this. Something you can... Oh, man. I told you, five sermons. I'm, I'm on the fly editing five sermons down to one. I have to speak to this. Who's attacking the truth right now? The answers are really wide and varied. But let me give you a, a couple of categories, and you see kind of which ones land on you. There is always attack from without. There is an air of arrogance and intellectual superiority that for decades has come with claiming to be an agnostic about spiritual matters, about the afterlife, about truth. Who can really know if there's truth? I'm just an agnostic. You know what agnostic is? It's two Greek words put together that say without knowledge. So to celebrate your ignorance is not a virtue. Dig into it and figure out. doesn't mean that you boldly make all these bold assertions you have no, no clue about. No, dig in, find out the truth, and then hold to it. Cling fast to it. There are gender ideologues out there right now. If your kids are in public school, I have kids in public school. Your role as discipling and training your kids and teaching your kids is absolutely through the roof. There's an active billion-dollar industry indoctrinating our kids with craziness. Let me give you one short answer that's the truth. It's clear. It cuts through all the garbage and nonsense. It's from our New City Catechism that our family worked through last year. One question and answer for each week. There's 52 of them. You can do it. Here it is. I asked, if I asked my 8-year-old, she would get this right. How and why did God create us? 
How and why did God create us? Listen to the three-part answer. God created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. How clear-cut is that? It wasn't assigned by a doctor at birth. It's not fluid. It is a gift of God. Men, women, celebrate and receive with humility your gender. You are made in the image of God. And your gender on this planet is to glorify Him. How and why did God create us? God created us male and female in His own image to glorify Him. That's one place of attack. Another place of attack is just modern cults. There are cults all over the place that are absolutely in denial of Jesus as salvation. Now, here's the thing. If anything is a surrogate Savior besides Jesus, it's wrong. If any gospel comes to you that says Jesus plus something, it's wrong. I'll let you just fill in the blanks with that. But there are people who call themselves Roman Catholics that have replaced Jesus with the church to save them. There are Mormons who have replaced Jesus with works to save them. There are evangelicals who have replaced the Republican Party with Jesus to save them. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. I don't care if you call yourself, whatever you call yourself, that's unimportant to me. There's salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. Write these three things down. This is going to go really quick. How do I do this? How do I obey these verses? What does it look like to guard the good deposit, to follow the pattern of truth? Number one is to rightly divide the word of truth. That means more than reading it or even more than memorizing it. It means ruminating on it, thinking about it, studying it, asking questions of it. I don't understand this. Help. Tell you one of the biggest things of growth in my life has been teaching other people the Bible. As I help other people grow in their life with Christ, that's called discipleship. We'll get into it next week. I grow in my life with Christ. As I've helped other young couples get married and prep for marriage, I've grown in marriage. On and on it goes. Here's number two. Close the door. What do we mean by that? It's back to this idea of open-mindedness. I'm really open-minded. Being open-minded isn't being an idiot, honestly. Think about your front door right now. Do you know whose job it is to lock up at night? It's my job, the dad. Doesn't mean I do it every time. I take full responsibility of our home each and every night. Why? Because there are bad guys that want to get into homes. That's why. I don't just leave my door open. If I was in castle times, I'd take up the drawbridge because there are things I want to be kept safe inside and there are things outside that I don't want inside. How about your mind? I love that line, like, like hungry vultures, just mindlessly taking what the culture feeds us. And it shows these two kids scrolling away. Close the door, friends. Close the door to your home. Close the door to your screens. Close the door to your own mind. What that means is take in the light of truth, and then when something else comes, you say, let me test that against Scripture. Is that even true? That's not true. We're not letting that in here. That's going to infiltrate and do bad things. I'm called as one of the shepherds of this church to do that same thing here. If there are divisive, wicked, false doctrines happening here, I am called, along with my other elders, to squash that. 
to deal with that, to close the door. Are we a welcoming church? Yes, immensely. Do I love learning and new ideas? Yes, immensely. Close the door. Number three is get going. Man, there's so many places in Scripture. I'll just point to one. Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Do you hear the movement involved in that? You don't need a lamp or a light if you're just staying put. Unless you're reading. (laughs) There's movement to the truth. Follow the pattern of sound words. Don't just believe it. So get going. I'll tell you how you figure scriptures out. You go, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit dwells in me? You read elsewhere. Don't worry about what you're going to say when you're attacked for your faith. The Spirit will give you words to say in the moment. Do you know how you test that? You get going. You open your mouth in the break room. You open your mouth with that group of friends that that bash Christians. You go, that's actually not true. And in all the grace you can muster and all the truth and all the courage you can muster, you begin to make a defense of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ whom you love and bled and died for you. And in doing so, they will come at you with questions and you will spout out things and go, I didn't even know I knew that verse. Whoa, what was that? It's the Holy Spirit in you giving you utterance in the very moment that you needed it. Band, why don't you come on up? You're getting like one and a half sermons. I'm done in two minutes. Stay with me. How long could this list be, by the way? How do I do this? I have a list seven long easily, all with subpoints. What are the results of following the pattern of truth and guarding it? The results are many. I'll give you three. Number one is joy. Do you know the antidote to anxiety, to fear, to melancholy, to hopelessness? It's following the pattern that God has laid out to you. doesn't mean life will be easy. doesn't mean you'll never struggle with fear. But that is the antidote to all of those things. Here's number two is clarity. How powerful it is on a regular basis to get perspective of the one who knows the beginning from the end. And speak so pointedly and clearly into confusing times. I don't know about you, but I lay awake at night and I say, God, I confess my fear of, of, my fear of worry over the future. Help me not to do that. I'm your child. I don't, need to, I don't need to live in that. Be anxious for nothing. But in all things, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. Okay, God, here's my request. My request is help me do right by these kids. Help me teach them the clear, true path. You know what he does? He answers that prayer. Please open your Bible in your homes. Please open your Bible by yourself. Come to these places and say, wow, there's such clarity here in all the loud voices going on all over the place. Psalm 119, 130 says this, the unfolding of your words gives light. Listen to this. It imparts understanding to the simple. Have confidence that the basic message of the Bible is easily understood by eight-year-olds. I know because I teach it to them on a regular basis. Here's the last one, protection. What does living by the truth protect you from? Number one, your own folly. There's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. There are so many things I would have thought for sure this was the way to go. That this could never happen to me. The Bible told me differently. I lived differently. And the Bible was proved right. So it protects you from your own folly. Here's the last thing it protects you from. It protects you from the wrath of God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
There's forgiveness in Jesus for all of our sins, but the wrath of God is coming on those who are just living life with them in charge. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of this, even though there are some heavy topics and I stir up things in our minds, God, that, um, that are coming against us. We know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. God, we celebrate and sing and believe and actually live as if you are in charge and in control. God, you've proven yourself over and over and over again. We look forward this week to seeing that done again. In Jesus' name, amen.